Chapters fifty seven and fifty eight of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter fifty seven. The second hunt in the mountains. Fair dawned over the hills of Martair the jocund morning of our hunt. Everything had been prepared for it overnight, and when we arrived at the house, a good breakfast was spread by Shorty and old Tonoy was bustling about like an innkeeper. Several of his men also were in attendance to accompany us with calabashes of food, and, in case we met with any success, to officiate as bearers of burdens on our return. Apprised the evening previous of the meditated sport, the doctor had announced his willingness to take part therein. Now subsequent events made us regard this expedition as a shrewd device of the Yankees, once get us off on a pleasure trip, and with what face could we afterwards refuse to work? Besides, he enjoyed all the credit for giving us a holy day. Nor did he omit assuring us that, work or play, our wages were all the while running on. A dilapidated old musket of Tonoy's was borrowed for the doctor. It was exceedingly short and heavy, with a clumsy lock, which required a strong finger to pull the trigger. On trying the piece by firing at a mark, Long Ghost was satisfied that it could not fail of doing execution. The charge went one way and he the other. Upon this, he endeavored to negotiate an exchange of muskets with Shorty, but the cockney was proof against his blandishments. At last, he entrusted his weapon to one of the natives to carry for him. Marshalling our forces, we started for the head of the valley near which a path ascended to a range of high land, said to be a favorite resort of the cattle. Shortly after gaining the heights, a small herd, some way off, was perceived entering a wood. We hurried on, and, dividing our party, went in after them at four different points, each white man followed by several natives. I soon found myself in a dense covert, and after looking round, was just emerging into a clear space when I heard a report, and a bullet knocked the bark from a tree nearby. The same instant there was a trampling and crashing, and five bullocks nearly abreast broke into view across the opening and plunged right towards the spot where myself and three of the islanders were standing. They were small, black, vicious-looking creatures, with short, sharp horns, red nostrils, and eyes like coals of fire. On they came, their dark woolly heads hanging down. By this time my island backers were roosting among the trees. Glancing round for an instant, to discover a retreat in case of emergency, I raised my piece when a voice cried out from the wood, Right between the orns, Paul, right between the orns. Down went my barrel in range with a small white tuft on the forehead of the headmost one, and letting him have it, I darted to one side. As I turned again, the five bullocks shot by like a blast, making the air eddy in their wake. The Yankee now burst into view and saluted them in flank, whereupon the fierce little bull with the tufted forehead flirted his long tail over his buttocks, kicked out with his hind feet, and shot forward at full length. It was nothing but a graze, and in an instant they were out of sight, the thicket into which they broke rocking overhead, and marking their progress. The action over, the heavy artillery came up in the person of the long doctor with his blunderbuss. 
"'Where are they?' he cried, out of breath. "'A mile or two off by this time,' replied the cockney. "'Lord, Paul, you ought to have sent an ale-stone into that little blacken.' While excusing my want of skill as well as I could, Zeke, rushing forward, suddenly exclaimed, "'Creation! What are you about there, Peter?' Peter, incensed at our ill-luck, and ignorantly imputing it to the cowardice of our native auxiliaries, was bringing his piece to bear upon his trembling squire, the musket-carrier, now descending a tree. Pulling trigger, the bullet went high over his head, and hopping to the ground, bellowing like a calf, the fellow ran away as fast as his heels could carry him. The rest followed us, after this, with fear and trembling. After forming our line of march anew, we went on for several hours without catching a glimpse of the game, the reports of the muskets having been heard at a great distance. At last we mounted a craggy height to obtain a wide view of the country. From this place we beheld three cattle quietly browsing in a green opening of a wood below, the trees shutting them in all round. A general re-examination of the muskets now took place, followed by a hasty lunch from the calabashes. We then started. As we descended the mountainside, the cattle were in plain sight until we entered the forest when we lost sight of them for a moment, but only to see them again as we crept close up to the spot where they grazed. They were a bull, a cow, and a calf. The cow was lying down in the shade by the edge of the wood, the calf sprawling out before her in the grass, licking her lips while old Taurus himself stood close by, casting a paternal glance at this domestic little scene, and conjugally elevating his nose in the air. "'Now then,' said Zeke in a whisper, "'let's take the poor creeters while they are huddled together. Crawl along, boys, crawl along. Fire together, mind, and not till I say the word.' We crept up to the very edge of the open ground, and knelt behind a clump of bushes, resting our leveled barrels among the branches. The slight rustling was heard. Taurus turned round, dropped his head to the ground, and sent forth a low, sullen bellow, then snuffed the air. The cow rose on her foreknees, pitched forward alarmedly, and stood upon her legs, while the calf, with ears pricked, got right underneath her. All three were now grouped, and in an instant would be off. "'I take the bull!' cried our leader, fire the calf fell like a clod its dam uttered a cry and thrust her head into the thicket but she turned and came moaning up to the lifeless calf going round and round it snuffing fiercely with her bleeding nostrils a crashing in the wood and a loud roar announced the flying bull soon another shot was fired and the cow fell leaving some of the natives to look after the dead cattle the rest of us hurried on after the bull his dreadful bellowings guiding us to the spot where he lay. Wounded in the shoulder, in his fright and agony, he had bounded into the wood. But when we came up to him, he had sunk to the earth in a green hollow, thrusting his black muzzle into a pool of his own blood, and tossing it over his hide in clots. The Yankee brought his piece to a rest, and the next instant, the wild brute sprang into the air, and with his forelegs crouching under him, fell dead. Our island friends were now in high spirits, all courage and alacrity. Old Tonoi thought nothing of taking poor Taurus himself by the horns and peering into his glazed eyes. 
our ship-knives were at once in request, and, skinning the cattle, we hung them high up by cords of bark from the boughs of a tree. Withdrawing into a covert, we there waited for the wild hogs, which, according to Zeke, would soon make their appearance lured by the smell of blood. Presently we heard them coming in two or three different directions, and, in a moment, they were tearing the offal to pieces. As only one shot at these creatures could be relied on, we intended firing simultaneously, but somehow or other the doctor's piece went off by itself, and one of the hogs dropped. The others then breaking into the thicket, the rest of us sprang after them, resolved to have another shot at all hazards. The cockney darted among some bushes, and a few moments after we heard the report of his musket, followed by a quick cry. On running up, we saw our comrade doing battle with a young devil of a boar, as black as night, whose snout had been partly torn away. Firing when the game was in full career, and coming directly toward him, Shorty had been assailed by the enraged brute. It was now crunching the breech of the musket, with which he had tried to club it, Shorty holding fast to the barrel and fingering his waist for a knife. Being in advance of the others, I clapped my gun to the boar's head, and so put an end to the contest. Evening now coming on, we set to work loading our carriers. The cattle were so small that a stout native could walk off with an entire quarter, rushing through thickets and descending rocks without apparent effort, though, to tell the truth, no white man present could have done the thing with any ease. As for the wild hogs, none of the islanders could be induced to carry shorties some invincible superstition being connected with its black color. We were, therefore, obliged to leave it. The other, a spotted one, being slung by green thongs to a pole, was marched off with by two young natives. With our bearers of burdens ahead, we then commenced our return down the valley. Halfway home, darkness overtook us in the woods, and torches became necessary. We stopped and made them of dry palm branches, and then, sending two lads on in advance, for the purpose of gathering fuel to feed the flambeau, we continued our journey. It was a wild sight. The torches, waved aloft, flashed through the forest, and where the ground admitted, the islanders went along at a brisk trot, notwithstanding they bent forward under their loads. Their naked backs were stained with blood, and occasionally, running by each other, they raised wild cries, which startled the hillsides. CHAPTER 58 THE HUNTING FEAST AND A VISIT TO AFRIHITU Two bullocks and a boar, no bad trophies of our day's sport. So by torchlight we marched into the plantation, the wild hog rocking from its pole, and the doctor singing an old hunting song, Tally Ho, the chorus of which swelled high above the yells of the natives. We resolved to make a night of it, kindling a great fire just outside the dwelling, and hanging one of the heifer's quarters from a limb of the banyan tree, every one was at liberty to cut and broil for himself. Baskets of roasted breadfruit and plenty of taro pudding, bunches of bananas and young coconuts had also been provided by the natives against our return. The fire burned bravely, keeping off the mosquitoes, and making every man's face glow like a beaker of port. The meat had a true wild-game flavor, not at all impaired by our famous appetites, and a couple of flasks of white brandy, which Zeke, producing from his secret store, circulated freely. 
there was no end to my long comrade's spirits. After telling his stories and singing his songs, he sprang to his feet, clasped a young damsel of the grove round the waist, and waltzed over the grass with her. But there's no telling all the pranks he played that night. The natives, who delight in a wag, emphatically pronounced him my tie. It was long after midnight ere we broke up, but when the rest had retired, Zeke, with the true thrift of a Yankee, salted down what was left of the meat. The next day was Sunday, and, at my request, Shorty accompanied me to Afrahitu, a neighboring bay and the seat of a mission, almost directly opposite Papati. In Afrahitu is a large church and schoolhouse, both quite dilapidated, and planted amid shrubbery on a fine knoll, stands a very tasteful cottage, commanding a view across the channel. In passing, I caught sight of a graceful calico skirt disappearing from the piazza through a doorway. The place was the residence of the missionary. A trim little sailboat was dancing out at her moorings a few yards from the beach. Straggling over the low lands in the vicinity were several native huts, untidy enough, but much better every way than most of those in Tahiti. We attended service at the church, where we found but a small congregation, and after what I had seen in Papati, nothing very interesting took place. But the audience had a curious, fidgety look, which I knew not how to account for, until we ascertained that a sermon with the Eighth Commandment for a text was being preached. It seemed that there lived an Englishman in the district, who, like our friends the planters, was cultivating Tombe's potatoes for the Papati market. In spite of all his precautions, the natives were in the habit of making nocturnal forays into his enclosure and carrying off the potatoes. One night he fired a fowling piece charged with pepper and salt at several shadows which he discovered stealing across his premises. They fled, but it was like seasoning anything else. The knaves stole again with a greater relish than ever, and the very next night he caught a party in the act of roasting a basketful of potatoes under his own cooking shed. At last, he stated his grievances to the missionary, who, for the benefit of his congregation, preached the sermon we heard. Now, there were no thieves in Martyr, but then the people of the valley were bribed to be honest. It was a regular business transaction between them and the planters. In consideration of so many potatoes, to them in hand, duly paid, they were to abstain from all depredations upon the plantation. Another security against roguery was the permanent residence upon the premises of their chief, Tonoi. On our return to Martyr, in the afternoon, we found the doctor and Zeke making themselves comfortable. The latter was reclining on the ground, pipe in mouth, watching the doctor, who, sitting like a Turk before a large iron kettle, was slicing potatoes and Indian turnips, and now and then shattering splinters from a bone, all of which by turns were thrown into the pot. He was making what he called bullock broth. In gastronomic affairs, my friend was something of an artist, and, by way of improving his knowledge, did nothing the rest of the day but practice in what might be called experimental cookery, broiling and grilling and deviling slices of meat, and subjecting them to all sorts of igneous operations. It was the first fresh beef that either of us had tasted in more than a year. "'Oh, ye'll pick up arter a while, Peter,' observed Zeke toward night, 
as Long Ghost was turning a great rib over the coals. What do you think, Paul? He'll get along, I dare say, replied I. He only wants to get those cheeks of his tanned. To tell the truth, I was not a little pleased to see the doctor's reputation as an invalid fading away so fast, especially as on the strength of his being one, he had promised to have such easy times of it, and very likely, too, at my expense. End of chapters 57 and 58 Recording by Tricia G.